This message is brought to you by Trinity Community Church in Cary, North Carolina, where we love God, love others, and make disciples of Jesus. For more information, check out www.tritrinity.org. Thanks for listening. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has shown a great vision of the glory and the holiness of God, and Isaiah responds and, and, and uh, says, Lord, I will go for you. I will go. Send me. And then, he, and then he asks, well, what shall I say to these people? And God says, well, essentially, you're going to preach and nobody's going to listen. So he had a tough job. Uh, but the book of Isaiah gives both, as many of the prophets do, both a message of judgment and a message of hope to God's people. Uh, judgment because in some 50 years, Jerusalem would be destroyed and the, uh, the Jewish people would be carried off to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. But he also prophesied hope that less than 100 years after that exile, God would use another nation and specifically King Cyrus, whom Isaiah names uh, hundreds of years before uh, Cyrus is around, in chapter 45, God would use another nation, King Cyrus, to conquer the Babylonians and bring God's people, bring a remnant of God's people back to Jerusalem. And so one of the amazing things about this book is that Isaiah is speaking these events 50 to 150 years before they happened. And so we, as believers in Christ, we need those, both of those messages, don't we? We need a message of judgment, of, of reality, of what God thinks of our situation, uh, but we also need a message of hope, don't we? We need a message which declares truth in the midst of a broken world, and we need a message of hope both now and in the future. Why so? Well, like the Israelites um, in one of the previous chapters, uh, it, it says that they feel forsaken by God. Why would you say you are forsaken by God? Sometimes we feel that way. Some, some of us feel simply forgotten by God. Do I really matter to God? Like Israel, some of us are face to face with the consequences of our own sin. When we sin, there's always the, the sin, the offense against God, but sometimes there are just worldly, just natural consequences that we face because of our sin. Like the Israelites, we have gone to other things than God for spiritual help. Like the Israelites, we may have spent hours staring at things which cannot speak or save. If you read Isaiah chapter 44, the end of Isaiah chapter 44, it gives this long description about the, the craftsman who, who makes an idol and he carves this piece of wood and, and the metalsmith crafts an idol and he spends all this time. And then he says he makes this block of wood and sets it down. And then what can it do? Can it speak? Can it save? Can it listen to your troubles and really listen to your heart? Can it know your heart in the depths of your heart? As we see idols around us, I mean, some people do have the little Buddha on the dashboard or whatever the case may be, but as we see idols in our culture, that people look to those things to give them only what God can give them. That's very true. So maybe we've spent hours staring or consuming our time with things which cannot speak or save. 
Maybe like the Israelites, we have begun thinking that pragmatism or compromise is the way to survive in the years ahead. Old Testament scholar John Oswalt wrote this. He, he said, imagine if the Jewish people had adopted a, now this is my uh, summary, but a just-get-along attitude. Imagine if the Israelites had adopted a just-get-along attitude before going into exile, before being taken from Jerusalem and being sent uh, to Babylon. Maybe, what if they had adopted a just-get-along attitude such as this? We shouldn't insist our God is the only God. That would be arrogant and intolerant. Let's just use the term divine being because that's what the Babylonians use. In order not to offend anyone, let's admit our conception of God is too narrow. Maybe we should tell the Babylonians that our knowledge of God is deeply flawed and biased. A just-get-along attitude. I thought it was interesting how relevant that is to our culture, the way he phrased those. Well, all of those points are the exact opposite of what Isaiah tells God's people over chapters 45 through 54. The scholar John Oswald outlines Isaiah's scriptural counterparts to the just-get-along attitude. So if you want to jot these down in your, in your bulletin, you might have room there, but think of these scriptural counterparts to the just-get-along attitude. Number one, our sin is not insisting firmly enough on God's absolute uniqueness. That besides God, the true and living God, the creator of the universe, God, Yahweh, who has manifested himself through the scriptures, besides him there is no other. Number one. Number two, the Babylonian gods are not really gods. They are products of human ingenuity applied to the world. We were looking in the Sunday school hour about the issue of idolatry. And, uh, and really, uh, the idols are, are, are not really gods. They are false gods. They are products of human ingenuity. Number three, these so-called gods do not know where we came from or where we are going, but our God does know, and he tells us plainly. Isn't that wonderful? When you read the scriptures, and Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't it wonderful when you read a passage such as that, you can say, you can thank God and say, God, I thank you that you know where I have been. You know where I am right now. And you know where I'm going. That is wonderful news, is it not? These so-called gods do not know where we came from or where we are going. Number four, he says the scriptural counterpart or, or uh, uh, objection, uh, answer to these just-get-along attitudes is our God is not the so-called universal being. He is distinct from us in that he is the creator and we are creatures. Let me give you a sampling of some of these verses that lead up to chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 6, I am the first and the last. Again, the same phrase, besides me, there is no God. 
Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Isaiah 48, 11, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 46, verse 7, they lift it, they lift an idol to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. And so the question over these series of chapters leading up to Isaiah 52 is, to whom will you flee for help? To whom will you go for comfort? To whom will you go for deliverance? To whom will you go for forgiveness? To whom will you go for true friendship? To whom will you go for for the healing from the disappointments and the hurts that you've experienced? And God says, I am your Savior. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your Redeemer. Isaiah 52, verse 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so this passage is, I think, one of the most stirring, prophetic, and poetic passages that is about Jesus in the entire Bible. If you just read this passage to someone who's a non-Christian, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. If you just read that to someone who's a non-Christian and say, well, who do you think this is about? A lot of people would see, would, would make the connection that this is about Jesus. When we lived in Florida, I knew a, a uh, Messianic uh, Jewish rabbi, Jerry Keyes. He was pastor of a Messianic synagogue in uh, in Ocala, Florida. And I said, how did you come to faith? And he said, I was in a regular Jewish synagogue and I read Isaiah 53 in front of the congregation. And a a bright light just came onto the page and I knew that that Jesus was real. That's how he was converted. That's how he became a Christian, amazing. So the main point of this, Isaiah 52 and 53, is that Jesus is God's righteous servant. Jesus is God's son, his righteous servant. The the term servant is used over these chapters, Isaiah uh, 42 and following. Sometimes it refers to God's people as his servant. Sometimes it refers to King Cyrus, whom God will use as his servant to bring the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. But in this context, it's pointing to God's one and only righteous servant, that his victory, Jesus' victory on our behalf, is accomplished through his suffering and death. We are no longer alienated from God, but God has made a way for us to be brought back to him. Amen? Jesus is God's righteous servant, the only one who can bring us into relationship with God. And so in the beginning, we have this picture of victory of God's servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then immediately you have this shocking, uh, seemingly disconnect about his appearance. 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, you have this opening statement of victory there in that one verse, and then the following verses have this, this uh, statement about the, the shock about his appearance. And the term sprinkle many nations may seem like an odd reference. There's a different translation there that uh, it could be the word startle instead of sprinkle. Uh, you have to make kind of a decision of which one uh, is, is better in the context. Personally, I think the term sprinkle better points towards the sacrifice of Christ, uh, the sacrifice of the blood, which would be the blood of the new covenant. But the point to this shock and astonishment of these earthly rulers is that they could not make sense of the Messiah. Think about the first king when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. King Herod, not a nice guy. His response was basically, what? A king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem? I don't want to tolerate that. I'm going to kill all the males under two years old. I must stay in power. Have you thought about the idea that when Jesus was an infant, Herod was paranoid about his rule? Because the, the, the Jewish scribes knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. In chapter 53, the first stanza then begins with an explanation of the rejection of Jesus. Why do they not recognize God's Son? For who has believed what he has heard from us? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Why did the people not recognize God's son? Precisely because he was born to an ordinary mother and had an ordinary legal father, Joseph. There was nothing particularly attractive about his appearance. In 1 Samuel, it says when David was chosen as the, the uh, new king of Israel, it says that uh, they went through all of David's older brothers. And the Lord says, no, it's not, not this one, not this one, this old, not this one, few years younger, not this one, few years younger. Oh, then now we get down to the shepherd David. Yes, that's the one. Why? Because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus wasn't part of the popular crowd. He was rejected. He was despised. It says, we esteemed him not. That the people he came to save did not think much of him. Even at times, his disciples, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Lord, why don't you show yourself to the world? Do these miracles more out in the open. Why don't you show yourself? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Imagine the people who, at that time, just, they just wanted to live and let live. Jesus, he's that guy that takes everything so seriously about life, as if eternity is at stake or something. 
I'm more of a live and let live kind of guy. Now, Jesus, I'm sure, had uh, relaxing moments with his disciples. I'm sure he had a good sense of humor. I mean, he's God after all. You know, he didn't create the platypus, you know. I think, I think of, I look at the platypus and I go, God has to have a sense of humor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Blessed are the mourn, for they will be comforted. He goes right to the heart. People would ask him questions and he would say, well, wait a second. Let's get to the heart of the issue. We dis- he was despised and we esteemed him not. The second stanza, why was he so acquainted with grief? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He took upon himself our grief and our sorrows. We considered him stricken and afflicted. The scripture says in Galatians that Christ became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who does not do what is written in the book of the law. In the Old Testament, it says. And he became a curse for us so that we could be redeemed. Picture the spiritual and emotional agony of Jesus when the people whose sin he was carrying were shouting, Come down from that cross. He saved others. Now save yourself. Every one of us, brothers and sisters, is in the same predicament as those who were shouting those insults on that Friday. Crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Not only have we gone astray, it says each one of us has turned to his own way. Look at that phrase there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. (laughs) Our current culture what do we love to do? We love to point the finger at everybody else, right? Blame everybody else for things. And the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's trying to live our lives without God. That's seeking from people or seeking from other things, the love, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, and the peace that only Jesus can give. Why do we need God, especially this time of year? Because even if we throw the perfect holiday party, even if we have the best Christmas gifts, even if we have the most epic family get-together, there is the moment of silence when all of that stuff is put away and the family and friends leave and you're by yourself and you you lay down in the bed at night and you go, what do I ultimately have? And my prayer is that each one of us would say, I have Jesus. I have everything I need. Jesus knows the worst sins that you and I have committed. He took them upon himself willingly as part of the Father's plan. That's verses 6 through 9. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
He gave himself willingly as part of the Father's plan. And look at the sinlessness of Jesus in verse 9 there. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus never had to apologize for anything because he never sinned. He was never wrong. The man who never harmed another person was unjustly executed. The man who never uttered deceit was convicted on false charges. The man who gave life and healing to other people, his life was cut short. The man who had done no violence was violently beaten and killed. Now, was all of that just a tragic irony? No, it was more than that. The book of Romans tells us this in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, an atoning sacrifice by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God forgive sin and yet not compromise his own holiness? Because he gave his one and only perfect son as the propitiation for our sins. God did this to demonstrate his love for us, to make, us, to make a way for us to know him, and even more, to demonstrate to the world what a just, loving, and gracious God he is. And then the last stanza of this song, this song of the servant, we have the victory. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Whenever you sin or do something wrong that you realize you have a feeling of guilt or you have a feeling of, of shame, realize he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. Thank you, Lord. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What do, what do victors do? They divide the spoil. They say, this, these are the, the prizes of victory. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He shall bear their iniquities. He shall see his offspring. He shall see those who would come to faith in him. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. Listen to these words. This is a beautiful description of the birth of Christ. With the arrival of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem, God took a brush and painted on the canvas of history what God was really like. When Christ appeared, he rendered obsolete all previous guesses about God's nature 
and he rendered arrogant all subsequent ones. God took a brush and painted on the canvas of history what God was really like. When Christ appeared, he rendered obsolete all previous guesses about God's nature, and he rendered arrogant all subsequent ones. Have you responded to the servant? Have you responded to God's righteous servant, Jesus Christ, his son? He calls for a response. The beginning of Jesus' message, Mark chapter 1, verse 15 The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Have you responded to that in repentance, that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, and that he calls each one of us to repentance and faith in him? That's the first question. Have you responded to the servant? And then secondly, how have we modeled our lives after the servant? In Philippians chapter 2, it says, have, have in mind, have the same attitude in mind uh, of that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, took the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, obedient to death. And it says that scripture in Philippians also talks about every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's also in Isaiah, I think chapter 45, that every knee will bow to the Savior. Do we model our lives after the servant. I think often in our, in our world how, how violent it is. And the only way that we can live by the Spirit of God in a way that does not strike back when we, when we are wronged, either personally or as nations or uh, different, different groups of people, The only way that we can survive in that world is to know, ultimately, that there is a Savior who will ultimately right every wrong in the end. The only way that we can show restraint and the love of Christ to others is by recognizing that ultimately every wrong will be dealt with by Jesus. Yes, there are conflicts between nations that go on and on and on. Jesus talked about, you know, this is a mark of of the end of the days. But when we have a Savior who has suffered for us, that gives us the love and the compassion to say, Lord, I know you will make this right in the end. Therefore, I do not need to insist on my own right to, to strike back. How do we model our lives? after the servant. Let's pray.